Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santosh Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. On today's episode of Integrative Oncology Talk, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Judith Lacey, Head of Supportive Care and Integrative Oncology at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse in Sydney, Australia, where she focuses on integrative oncology and palliative care. Dr. Lacey has a special interest in medical cannabis research as well. She is an active member of the Multinational Association of Supportive Oncology and an SIO board member. In today's podcast, we'll be focusing on how palliative care and integrative oncology can work together and the concept of supportive oncology or supportive care as a umbrella term for both of these uh, specialties. We'll also be talking about how Australia is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the recommendations that Dr. Lacey makes in this time. Hi, Judith. How are you doing today? No, I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much for making the time. I mean, I I think uh, this is a a first for me in terms of the time difference. We're actually 17 hours apart. So the fact that we can make this work is uh, amazing. Uh, I can make everything work. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) So how have you guys been doing, um, you know, in Australia during this whole COVID-19 crisis? Well, it's just... um I was just thinking about it and how lucky we are in Australia compared, I guess, to places like um, the US, the UK and parts of Europe We and China. We, um, I mean, we're in complete lockdown and uh, have almost 7,000 cases of which is in a country of, you know, 26 million isn't a lot and we're very lucky and um, less than 100 deaths, which I think has been really good. But it meant... The cost was that we locked down pretty quickly and Mm -hmm. froze all of our services for a period of time. So um, we're struggling now to look at with our beautifully flattened curve what happens when we start letting people out. So that's where we're at at the moment. So I want to talk to you about some of the medical services. What is kind of continued and what's been kind of shut down? Wow. So initially we shut down just about everything and really bumped up our emergency services uh, it was I'm fortunate to be very involved in the executive and the inner circle of the hospital. So um, we had cabinet daily meetings. I felt like I was in a war cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite interesting looking at uh, what you can keep open and what you close down. So we turned the changed the entire hospital. It's a comprehensive cancer centre to um, telehealth. Mm-hmm. So ninety percent of consults were telehealth. Uh, surgeons obviously weren't, closed down all non-essential surgeries, uh, non-essential visits, kept chemotherapy and immunotherapies going, modified treatments uh, if we could, if that was safe, to, according to the protocol, to delay, you know, to spread them out a little bit if that was uh, within uh, keeping with the guidelines. And um, within the integrative oncology service, we s- shut down everything. And we shut down all touch therapies, uh, all our exercise classes, our lymphedema therapies, and just developed everything, put put all our efforts into developing an online program, which was very successful. But um, so there's been a big shift. And now we're just realising, oh, no, what about the cancer patients that are missing out on their screening tests and the uh, identification, early identification of cancer patients. And so that's now starting to reappear just this week. And just this week, we've opened up surgeries uh, and screening. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of us are going through the same thing and have made very similar uh, decisions. Just taking a step back, I mean, you have a really interesting profile in the in the fact that you do supportive oncology, integrative oncology. I want to first ask you a little bit of background on what integrative oncology looks like in Australia and how open are uh, people to integrative therapies and what are the therapies that you guys use most in Australia? Integrative oncology is very new in Australia. It's steadily growing. You know, we adopted, I'm the chair of the of the National Integrative Oncology Group for the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia. So we have a group of all the heads in the state of people running, serv- in the country, sorry, nationally, of people running services as part of our executive. But it's a, it's generally, it's a very new service. And there was a survey a few years ago looking at, um, which hospitals actually offer some level of integrative therapies and complementary therapies, and it's about 25% of cancer hospitals. Obviously, that's growing, and all our new cancer centres or new developments of old cancer services includes this wellness wing, which they're adding on Mm -hmm. with integrative therapies. But it's new. I'm one of the only doctors in Australia working in a hospital setting for as in integrative oncology, uh, but there are a lot of complementary therapies. There's a lot of acupuncture, uh, oncology, massage, reflexology, mind-body therapies, yoga, and exercise as a part of our program as well, as well as lymphedema therapy. So it's a, uh, a growing field where the very fortunate to be the leaders in the field in in Australia, but um, people are catching up. So how much of this is free to patients or that they have to pay for, or is it mostly, you know, uh, donated services? Good question. So Australia has one of the best healthcare systems in the world. Probably that's why our COVID numbers are so good as well. But so we have public health, everybody has public health cover. And that means that services are like medical visits with me, for example, uh, exercise physiology programs, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, all rebated. You get money back from our Medicare system, from our public system. So people will pay a gap or they'll, if they can't afford it, they will receive those, those treatments just from their private fund, from their public fund, from their public health cover. And then people have private health cover as well. So about 30% of people maybe, and in our hospital, it's a little bit more, will have private health cover that also uh, helps support access to complementary therapies. And then we um, rely on philanthropy for those people who have financial difficulties. And we use the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Score with the financial distress question really as a screening tool for some patients. Um, And we have uh, donors that have developed hardship funds for to make sure that there's equity of access to people who really could benefit from complementary therapies but can't afford it. So for breast cancer, for head and neck cancer patients and for patients that can't afford, uh, the therapies that we think will Uh, deliver better outcomes for the patients, we have philanthropic support. And so we try and keep that balance as as good as possible and as fair as possible. So is it accurate to say that integrative oncology is is seen as a somewhat essential service or is it seen as something that, you know, is is really dependent on support. And, you know, you mentioned that there's 25% of cancer centers right now that offer it. But what, oh. has been, what has been the pitch to say we need to have integrative services? Is it based on outcomes? Is it based on cost savings? Is it based on patient uh, interest? Well, Santosh, as you know, I think it's a mixture of all of those, isn't it? So number one is the realisation that if you keep people living longer with cancer, it's really your obligation to keep them living well. And, um, and it is our obligation to keep people living well throughout their cancer treatment as well as beyond. And that's where there's been funding and support for developing supportive care services to support people uh, throughout the cancer traje- trajectory. Traditionally, that's been allied health and palliative care and uh, medical oncologists. 
What we've found, though, is with, um, and as you know, integrative oncology gives that value add. It's more than just treating the symptoms. It's empowering people to live well, to change their lifestyles. There's a great growth in lifestyle medicine and the importance of lifestyle change, uh, the selected use of evidence-informed complementary therapies. And as that evidence develops, like the evidence in breast cancer supportive care and use of integrative therapies, there's a recognition that this is really important. Having said all of that, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to get it to this point. And we're very, very fortunate because of the, the values and the mission of our hospital and how the hospital was built and the real uh, recognition that this is essential. Let's talk about your hospital. You work at the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. First of all, where exactly is it? So it's in the heart of uh, Sydney, New South Wales, in Australia. It's one of it's the biggest state in Australia, and um, it uh, is a purpose-built, not-for-profit, comprehensive cancer hospital that serves that is adjacent to one of our largest teaching hospitals in Australia called Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And the Cancer Centre moved over uh, in and opened in 2013, but it was in the process of being built since the mid-2000s. I was, I was reading about the Cancer Centre. Tell me a little bit about who Chris O'Brien was and you know, his story and vision and, and whether that's, that's come to fruition now. Uh, so Chris O'Brien was a pretty amazing man. He was actually the director of the Sydney Cancer Centre, the uh, a head and neck surgeon who specialised in uh, cancer surgery. And his vision back in 2003 was to build this purpose-built comprehensive cancer centre where all cancer services are under one roof. And unfortunately, in 2006, he was diagnosed with uh, glioblastoma multiforme. And so the hospital had already, the plans were done, the centre was being developed, but he then dedicated uh, the rest of his life during his diagnosis and throughout all his treatments to making sure that this became a reality and really working with government and lobbying. The other part of his vision was that, and his realisation was that a person with cancer actually really benefits from the integrative therapies. And so a part of the vision of uh, Chris O'Brien Lifehouse was to have a dedicated dedicated integrative oncology program within the hospital and a dedicated space for complementary therapies alongside standard therapies. And so the hospital was built and opened in 2013 and uh, is one of the largest head and neck cancer um, services in Australia, uh, has a large research portfolio. It's the largest research clinical trials research unit in Australia in cancer research, or one of the largest in Australia, the largest in our state in New South Wales. So um, the, and it's a centre where the more complex surgeries are also, and the more complex cancer patients are also seen. So there's a bit of a skewed view. We've got all the um, uh, adolescent young adult services, we're a big centre for them, as well as the sarcoma surgeries and the reconstructions. And so not only is it a comprehensive cancer centre serving about 40,000 patients a year, but it's also a prides itself on uh, caring for the whole person and having all the services as and the multidisciplinary teams under one roof. Wonderful. You know, you, there's a lot of cute terms <laughs> on your integrative website. What is the Lifehouse living room? That's what our service was given the name of. We're actually, um, when they built the hospital, it's a, it's a beautiful purpose-filled hospital at the back of the hospital on, on the ground floor. There's the entranceway. So walking straight through is a purpose-filled uh, space called the living room. And that houses the integrative oncology and supportive care program. Um, and we have a purpose-built gym and education and breakout space, uh, treatment rooms, eight treatment rooms for acupuncture, reflexology, uh, and the psycho-oncology department is there. I sit there, the dietitian, 
And so it's a purpose-built space for the holistic care and the integrative ther therapies, the supportive care and integrative oncology space. We've outgrown it now. <laughs> yeah, that's a good sign. <laughs> is it all outpatient primarily? Well, that space is outpatient. And we also run outreach programs to radiation oncology, to day therapy. And we've got 125 beds in the hospital and we provide um, touch therapies and integrative therapies on the ward as well. Fantastic. To patients. Tell me a little bit about, I, you know, there were a couple of things that really caught my eye when I was reading about your program. Tell me a little bit about your music therapy program. So interestingly, um, the music therapy program is... Uh, a part of the psycho-oncology program. Uh, it's a fully funded program from a donor and it uh, has been established and very successful in providing uh, music therapy to patients on the ward as well as running uh, choir and uh, regular outpatient programs as well. So what we... So the program is developed to uh, work with the patient to develop, uh, to support them through music, but also in songwriting, in composition and in development of um, music as therapy. What if it's you... It's very uh, successful. Yeah what, yeah, what kind of experiences have you seen people have with just, you know, the idea of composing music and being creative in that process? Look, I think it, when I, I mentioned before, we're a very large young adult population and particularly for those young adults who are living with life-limiting disease, many of them have written quite uh, profound songs as legacy or as documents or as ways of coping through their treatment. So our music therapists will regularly uh, play those songs uh, in in that we have a foyer that has a grand piano and the music therapist will often stand there and uh, play music. Our, our patients, one of our patients before she died, um, was performing her song for the for the community in, in the foyer. And so that's, you know, it's pretty amazing. And that was actually weeks before she passed away. So we, it, because of the acoustics of the place, music is throughout the hospital every day. And that's a really lovely part of uh, of the energy of the hospital. That's amazing. And you also have a, a very interesting art program as well. Can you talk about that? Hmm. So when the hospital opened, uh, they developed what's called an artery program, which is art as therapy. And it's not um, art therapy, but it's a group of artists and people and volunteers who are working with patients to bring art to the patient. So they have something called cartery where they'll go around with a trolley with people who during their treatment or on the wards or in the waiting room and um, do artwork with them. There's an art making program and, uh, and they're generally very involved in uh, connecting to people who need or who could benefit from uh, the the process of art making as part of the healing journey and during and after cancer treatment. Yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, art and music therapy are still underutilized and, you know, relatively, you know, they're obviously, they have no side effects. And, um, you know, as long as you can have specialists run the program, you know, everybody loves art and music and it just it appeals yeah. to certain people, like you said. And that's where, and that sits slightly outside of the integrative oncology department simply because it is funded purely from philanthropy. And that's where philanthropic funding and funding through research really enables you to develop and maintain those programs. You also talk about the integrative provider as part of your program. You've titled it as a supportive care specialist. So yeah. I, I wanted to hear a little bit more about how you came up with that term and what all does that encompass? Okay, so I guess that uh, you need to hear a little bit about me then. Please. So my background, so my background is actually in um, palliative care. I'm a palliative care specialist and have worked uh, in palliative care for over 25 years. Uh, I re-specialised from general medicine in Australia. It's a four-year specialty. But what we found was, and I, Eduardo Barrero was really the champion of. Uh, 
coining the term and integrating the term of what happens if we call ourselves supportive care? Do we get more consults? Do people actually look at the the benefits of this holistic uh, care of the, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual aspects of a person's journey and life with cancer? And the answer is yes. And uh, the term supportive care has been adopted um, wholeheartedly uh, by many institutions in Australia and particularly our institution as providing care um, not just for people with advanced cancer and life-limiting illness but for people from the time of diagnosis to support them uh, with symptoms related to their disease-modifying treatment and uh, they're right into survivorship as well as for symptoms and uh, maintaining well-being and promoting well-being and empowering people who are living with a diagnosis of advanced cancer. So as a specialist in palliative care, I'm a specialist in palliative and supportive care. And then um, with this job uh, and as this has evolved, the... Uh, it made sense to be dropping the term palliative and opening uh, the service to people uh, from the time of diagnosis. And with that, the referral patterns have completely changed. So integrative oncology is a part of the holistic supportive care program. I love it. I mean, I'm a big fan of, uh, of this movement towards supportive care or supportive oncology. And, uh, you know, I think that Within palliative care, I think palliative care specialists were possibly the first people to regularly use a lot of integrative, you know, holistic methods just because, you know, that's what's needed at in end of life. They're, you know, non-invasive many times and it's mostly about symptom management. And I think the, the two intertwine very well together. But I also think that they have a similar mission and purpose. You know, it, when you met, talk about spiritual, holistic, you know, generally focused on well-being how do you see palliative care and integrative oncology complementing each other? I mean, do you still distinguish between the two or have they become so merged for you that they're almost the same thing? It's a, you know, that, that question has a little bit of politics to it as well. But I will step back and say when you look at the definitions of integrative oncology, the definition of supportive care from the Multinational Association of Supportive Cancer Care and the definition of palliative care, I think there's a huge overlap. You know, many of us will draw those tables of graphs of when to introduce palliative care and supportive care. I see it as supportive cancer care as this umbrella that incorporates palliative care, integrative oncology and all the support services that we provide patients to care for the whole person. So the physical, the emotional, the spiritual well-being. So I'll go back to the definitions and I will say that when you look at the definitions of integrative oncology, of supportive care from the the uh, Multinational Association of Supportive Care, caring for the whole person with cancer from the time of diagnosis uh, through to rehabilitation, survivorship and end-of-life care. Integrative oncology fits very comfortably uh, within that definition of supportive cancer care. Part of integrative oncology. Integrative oncology is greater than that. Um, palliative care um, sits within supportive cancer care but it is the focus is on life-limiting illness and keeping people living well with a diagnosis of life-limiting illness, looking at the, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual well-being, meticulous management of symptoms. And so when you take all those definitions and you say, well, where does integrative oncology fit in? I see it as part of um, really supporting patients and supportive care, but expanding our toolbox so that rather than our toolbox being the traditional medicines, the polypharmacy that we so often see in palliative care um, as far as uh, symptom management is concerned anyway, uh, integrative oncology gives us more tools. It also gives us the added tools of uh, encouraging patient, um, pa patient self-efficacy, uh, patient empowerment and enabling people to actually uh, live well and uh, incorporate self-care, lifestyle changes, and evidence-based uh, use of herbs and supplements and uh, selected complementary uh, non-ingested uh, therapies into their care. 
And so can you distinguish it? For me, I don't distinguish it. I see it as just more tools for the same care. I'm, uh, I believe in holistic supportive care. I think what we do have in integrative oncology is the opportunity to um, expand into disease prevention and into uh, reducing recurrence. And that's an interesting space. And I think that uh, each uh, by, you know, for me, it is a, a, it's just an integral part of the way care should be delivered. The caveat is the funding model. And the caveat in Australia is the funding model in that uh, palliative care has lobbied our government brilliantly and has um, worked really well to be one of the leaders in delivery of uh, palliative care and multidisciplinary palliative care to patients in their homes and in the hospital setting. And so I, uh, integrative oncology ha is yet to receive funding from that space. And so there is some political... Um, there are some political implications and also service model implications by taking different names. That's really interesting. Does that answer that? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, it raises questions too because you're you're obviously involved in policy development, which is, you know, you probably have a lot of influence in this. But I, I think that this is something that in our field is really um, kind of something that's a common theme for all of us. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel like we're in a very similar space as palliative care, but palliative care has become very well accepted and, you know, paid for by every cancer center, whereas integrative oncology is still, you know, kind of uh, hit or miss. And even when you do have integrative oncology programs, they may not be complete uh, or as complete as some others, right? Yeah. And that's why research is just so important and embedding research into every therapy we provide. And that's really the basis of our entire program, making sure that, um, you use the patient reported outcome measures from the time and you follow to evaluate the patients, to identify the symptom clusters. You develop the evidence-based path, evidence pathways to manage those symptoms and, um, and you measure the outcomes and you publish your work and you apply for more funding to be able to actually really embed uh, research and develop that evidence base so that we can say, actually, you know, one, the best care for uh, fatigue in your cancer patients may not be um, go home and lie down, but it will be exercise, acupuncture, uh, touch therapies during their breast cancer treatment and um, certain use of herbs and supplements safely uh, in, in the right time, in the right patient, in the right way. And it's looking at um, how you integrate that evidence-informed and evidence-based care seamlessly into palliative and supportive care that I think is really going to push the field further. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you mentioned your toolbox expanded when you started getting into integrative uh, therapies. What are, um, what are some of the common integrative modalities that you use in palliative care and that you found to be helpful? So I'm going to call it supportive care because I do call it supportive care and that about 50% of our patients are having curative treatment and 50% are with advanced disease. So those living with advanced care, we, uh, besides a holistic medical consultation, which is integral to our care, is exercise and getting people to a point where they can exercise, and that's a, a personalised exercise program with specialist exercise physiologists or physiotherapists. Acupuncture and uh, acupuncture by skilled acupuncturists with an understanding of cancer and cancer-related symptoms. Touch therapies, particularly in uh, people during treatments, and that's oncology, massage, and reflexology. Using acupressure uh, is uh, not every centre has reflexology, but a lot of people have acupressure. Mind-body therapies, so yoga, and yoga even with the patients with the advanced cancer. So we we run uh, chair yoga programs, yoga for lymphedema programs, really one-on-one -on -one yoga therapy. So even if somebody really can't move to have, and we're doing it by telehealth now, but to have that one-on-one -on -one connection, even if you're just doing breath work and pranayama, can really help 
uh, a person with an advanced cancer diagnosis feel a lot better and uh, improve their symptom management. Yoga, that includes yoga nidra and uh, mindfulness meditation. And by incorporating these therapies seamlessly into the offerings of um, the supportive care consultation, uh, it, they, they just have a place. And, um, and of course, medicinal cannabis is another uh, tool in my toolbox, which I've adopted as that's become you know, available in Australia to prescribe. You know, I think I want to ask you a little bit about uh, advanced cancer patients and end-of-life care. What are some of the unique uh, challenges these people have and what what do you find most useful from a supportive care standpoint for people at end-of-life and and how do you help them and their families? So since um, 2015, I write the chapter for the Oxford textbook of palliative medicine on managing the last days of life. And uh, our chapter for 2020 is coming out now, and I've written that with a guy called Nathan Cherney, who's the editor-in-chief of of the textbook and a medical oncologist. And I think what we do very well and what is really important is is recognising when uh, someone's disease is progressing and progressing rapidly and they're entering into that phase of, uh, of dying and recognising that when somebody is uh, coming closer to dying, their physical, their psychological, their existential, their social concerns uh, become so much more significant. And it's our role as healthcare providers, independent of the uh, the role that we take, as to work together as a multidisciplinary team to identify those whole person care needs of the patient, of their carers, and... Um, and whatever it takes to make that person feel as good as possible every day, every moment, and prepare for death. And so integrative therapies, uh, I see, and I've used in in the hospice that I used to work in and now in our cancer care service where a lot of our inpatients actually have advanced cancer, uh, integrative therapies are integral to their care. And uh, you think about... The, the need for touch and the need for reducing dependency on medications in that uh, advanced stage of, of living until you die and that stage of dying that uh, the sense of the importance of touch, of making people feel uh, more comfortable, of uh, skin integrity, of uh, reducing symptoms through non-drug uh, therapies, uh, integrative therapies are incredibly important and uh, medicinal cannabis sits in that space as well so when you're looking at um, how to care for the whole person you need to look at what's going on for that person what are the causes of suffering and what do you have in your toolbox that can alleviate that suffering that may be outside of the traditional syringe driver with midazolam and morphine and uh, lots of psychotropic drugs well, let's talk about that because uh, you know, once they get to that stage, there's there's uh, you know the the oncologist may uh, may drop off at that point, and you guys are front and center uh, of really managing and taking care of that individual um, at that point. And I think some of the most common symptoms are uh, pain and anxiety. Oh. Obviously, some people have breathing issues. How would you manage pain? For example, what are some of the non-medical, non-medicine-based uh, therapies that that you personally employ or recommend for managing pain? And Santosh, that is a a complex question itself because, as you know, pain is quite complex in that stage. Mm-hmm. And so it's really taking time. As and this is where my doctor hat sits very comfortably on my head taking that history so you really understand the cause of the pain and the type of pain in order to choose an intervention. So sometimes pain is just from lying around in bed, not moving. And so touch therapies can have a, for those patients, touch therapies can be very helpful. Uh, A lot of our advanced cancer patients will actually come in regularly even to the days before they're dying as outpatients for acupuncture and uh, and massage therapies. Many of our therapists will be uh, 
able to coordinate that these people receive touch therapies or reflexology at home. And it's using the touch therapies in combination with the right drugs at the right time that really assists in um, supporting the person's way of dying. So people live and die. People die as often how they have lived and there are many people who... um, continuing into their uh, relationship with their integrative oncology practitioner uh, is very essential and that gives them that sense of calm. I think the um, a lovely example that comes to mind for me is a, is a woman with metastatic breast cancer who uh, had really advanced um, bone, bone metastases and she found that didn't matter what drugs we gave her, if she didn't have a daily or second daily massage she couldn't relax. She couldn't get comfortable. And um, and our therapists were with her throughout the those uh, weeks regularly and those last days of, um, of her life to provide her with that comfort, to keep her from uh, being over-sedated, but to keep her comfortable and to keep her present uh, to be with her family and her daughter in those last days. So they play a... Um, does that answer, I guess? Um, yeah, it is a complex question. It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, I can talk purely palliative care at this point, Santosh. Yeah. You know, I can, I can rattle off my how you, how you identify and approach patients in the, in the last days of life. It's weaving in that integrative oncology piece that is, uh, is nuanced, isn't it? It is nuanced. I, and I think a lot of it also depends on what's available to you. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think many people have acupuncture available and that, that plays a role, you know, whether it's touch therapy, Reiki. Yeah. You know, I think another thing we don't talk about a lot, but uh, becomes uh, something that we focus on a lot at end of end of life care is spiritual issues. Absolutely. Whether from a supportive and integrative standpoint, we think of that in terms of, you know, when you start losing hope or your goal is not to cure your cancer or not to extend your life, you know, um, how do you help somebody uh, if you can? And I think that becomes an existential problem. And, and what I see a lot is is kind of, you know, issues that maybe you haven't resolved with your family uh, come front and center. And how do you, how do you see those issues uh, being dealt with from a supportive care standpoint? What are some of the ways that you think that we can help in, in that setting and bringing, bringing somebody's life, you know, whole full circle and helping them deal with, uh, with any spiritual issues they might have. You know, Santos, we work as a multidisciplinary service, don't we? We all work as multidisciplinary teams. It's recognizing how not to overburden your patient and their family, but while meeting their needs and identifying it and identifying, um, those spiritual concerns and, so the first thing I do is I actually ask the patient and I or I ask the family and I check in and I check in about how they're coping, where they are sitting in that space with, um, you know, dying, letting go, dealing with um, the complex spiritual concerns that, um, you know, defining those spiritual concerns, it's not... Uh, for many people, religion isn't a very big part of their life if it is identifying that and getting the clergy involved. But for most people, it's ad- addressing those spiritual concerns through psychotherapeutic interventions, through our spiritual care coordinator, our patient um, advocate, talking with me through touch therapies, through med- meditation, music therapy, and so it's really identifying what it is that works for that person and reaching out into this great toolbox that I do have and saying, wow, what about music? And going through that checklist and going through and seeing um, where the therapies that we do have available to us can help that person. And if the therapy at that time is us as, our, as the treating doctor, what tools do we have that we can assist? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, music therapy is probably one of the greatest t- 
tools that we have in the dying patients, actually. For, for our young dying patients, music is one of our greatest tools. Um, Sorry, Santosha, you're asking, I missed it. It's interesting. I wear multiple hats. And so I um, blending this works well sometimes and sometimes I just have to go with the, the, the basic crisis of uh, the acutely dying patient. Yeah, no, and I think that's part of our, you know, integrative model, you know, because I think part of it is have, being able to choose what works well for which person at that time. And so, you and know, that, that for some people, that's maybe something that we would consider integrative. And for some, for other people, it's straight, you know, whether it's oncology, palliative. To me, that's part of the different uh, hats we wear and, and what really makes us integrative, I think. And Santosh, I think that is that sums it up beautifully. I think the, the opportunity to choose that we actually have the luxury now that we can actually choose what works for that person at that time. Well, you've talked a lot about medical cannabis, and so I, I have to ask you about medical cannabis. I know you do research in uh, cannabis uh, uh, for medicinal purposes. What is this, its acceptance like in Australia? How difficult is it to do research there? I mean, I've been learning more about this as I've been doing this podcast, and it sounds like a lot of the U.S.'s uh, you know, prohibitions against marijuana and uh, cannabis from the 1930s has, has traveled around the world, including to Absolutely. Australia, right? So how has that changed recently? How hard is it to get that uh, uh, accepted and, and to be able to actually do research? It's changing rapidly. It's changing so rapidly every day. So in 2016, we really opened up the 2015, 2016, opened up the discussions about medicinal cannabis and actually started our first research in the use of uh, medicinal cannabis in chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and that was a government-funded study, which is happening in our hospital, uh, for anorexia in the advanced cancer patient, also a government-funded initiative. And that research uh, was really the segue to introducing uh, prescribing using what's called our special access scheme uh, through application to the government for each patient that we prescribe for for refractory symptoms, whether that's refractory epilepsy or multiple symptoms related to multiple sclerosis. And in my case, refractory um symptoms in people with advanced cancer or uh, receiving cancer treatments and, of course, chronic pain. And so uh, it's not recreational use is illegal. Uh, the cannabis needs to be prescribed by a doctor, which, you know, puts us in onto that steep learning curve of um, what is cannabis, how do we prescribe it safely. We have to make applications to the government for each script that we provide or become authorised prescribers. And uh, and that's been really successful. And they're about, you know, every day, every month, there are more scripts. But overall, there are only about, you know, 25,000, 30,000 scripts in all of Australia that have been written to date. I um, am also involved in research. And the I found that uh, research is probably a really important way of integrating, same with integrative therapies, integrative cannabis into comprehensive cancer care. So the research that I'm involved in, uh, one study which we've just completed and we've got a poster at ASCO, we're very excited on the tolerability and safety of using uh, different medicinal cannabis formulas for people with glioblastoma multiforme and the next stage of our study will be a multi-site uh, national study in the efficacy for uh, slowing recurrent disease and slowing disease. And we have some pilot data on that. Is that by, uh, is that by itself or with Temodar or is it in patients who with, are... With standard therapy. With standard therapy. With standard therapy. The, um, the other study which uh, has taken a long time to get through ethics and is finally through is the an observational study uh, using different medicinal cannabis products for people with refractory symptoms in advanced cancer. And that's a, a state study funded again in conjunction with the government uh, to really uh, 
help improve access to people that can't afford cannabis, but also to gather that data using patient reported outcome measures on the benefit of medicinal cannabis for symptom management and the side effects, the pharmacodynamics and everything else. So we do have uh, a lot of research going on in Australia. There's been a lot of private funding and government funding in research, into research. We just recently uh, went down to our state capital just before the coronavirus uh, lockdown to look at how best as a, as a country we approach cannabis research and where to invest our money to uh, move safe prescribing of cannabis further, further ahead. What forms of cannabis are you using in research? I mean, you said there's different forms. We use what we have available to us. So besides the fact that maybe Australia is a very large illicit cannabis growing nation over the years, we uh, have a very large um, medicinal cannabis growing uh, industry and that's rapidly growing. And so at the moment we have cannabis mainly from Canada and from uh, selected growers in Australia, in uh, mainly in oil form. Uh, some of our studies are using oil form in capsules as extracts, but mainly uh, whole plant oil form cannabis. Uh, we also have nano sprays and smoked cannabis in vaporizers for some of the studies, but uh, the majority is still in um, oil-based forms with varying percentages of THC, CBD and other cannabinoids and terpenes and varying terpene profiles. Because I, I don't do research in, uh, in with cannabis, but my understanding is that that's one of the, the key issues. How do you generalize some of these results when people are using different products and you mentioned you're doing pharmacodynamics so I think all that yeah. will be important and I work with um, one of the researchers I work very closely to is actually uh, has a large uh, cannabis lab in the National Institute of Complementary Medicine Health and Research Center for Western Sydney University where I'm an adjunct um, associate professor with that group and he's working on our study and their lab is quite uh, astonishing as to the equipment and the ability to evaluate uh, not just what's going on in the plant, but also the endocannabinoids and what's going on for the person and the impact of cannabis and potential receptors for cannabis. So there's a lot of very active research going on in Australia and, and quite a bit of money being put into it. It's really quite fascinating, isn't it? Um, oh, amazing. <laughs> because I, I feel even anecdotally, I mean, for some people, you know, it affects them significantly. There's people who feel like they really almost um, can't get by without their cannabis. I mean, it, not that they can't, uh, and I don't see it as any kind of addiction. It's just that it provides such an important uh, benefit for them whether it's cancer patients or just people who use it recreationally even, whereas for other people, it doesn't do so much, you know, or they get, uh, they have to take such a dose that, you know, they get, especially in the elderly, they take a high dose, they get a lot of side effects, and it's just not feasible, whereas for other people, it works like a charm. And, you know, I've only prescribed to a couple of hundred patients, and I, interestingly, I was reflecting and realizing I'm very interested in symptom clusters in cancer. And when you have uh, a history of working in palliative care and you use polypharmacy, you know, a drug for the nausea, a drug for the sleep, a drug for the anxiety, a drug for the depression, something else for pain, and then you have a um, something like cannabis that can actually target those multiple symptoms and reduce polypharmacy, getting the side effect profile right is... Um, getting the prescribing right and improving people's quality of life by reducing polypharmacy, choosing the right product, uh, helping people to self-titrate is all a part of, uh, I guess that's the advantage of a doctor prescribing, uh, is that you work with the patient as if you would work with prescribing, say, uh, gabapentin or pregabalin. You gradually adjust the um, get them, well, they self-titrate the cannabis, but you're also looking at well, what drugs don't you need now? Right. So how, if, what can we do next? If and for some patients, it works like a charm. And for others, they say, no, nah, it didn't help, but at least we've tried it and they feel satisfied. 
Yeah, it feels very strange uh, here in the in the U.S. that it's completely uh, you know farmed out to the medical marijuana uh, dispensary locations. I have nothing to do with what they take. I make recommendations, but I'm really not prescribing. Uh, I'm not allowed to, um, you know, at my current job. So uh, I find that kind of handicapping. It's also strange as somebody who gives people chemotherapy, I would think that I'd be able to end narcotics, uh, but I can't prescribe medical, you know, cannabis. And I was incredibly nervous about prescribing medical cannabis initially because, and I'm one of the few people in my entire area health service who prescribe medical cannabis comfortably. Uh, because people felt scared. You know, what is this? It's a plant. How do I prescribe it? But actually, when you get used to prescribing it and you realise the benefit and the safety of prescribing it, it changes people's lives. And I'll go back to working as a multidisciplinary program. You know, if somebody, I encourage, I guess I encouraged and was open to prescribing cannabis because it meant that people with complex symptoms were coming through my door. And when they were referred to my service, whether it was I just want to discuss medical cannabis, anyone who mentioned medical cannabis is in my door, they walk out with a script for exercise, a referral for the acupuncturist, a discussion about lifestyle changes and nutrition, reduction in their unnecessary drugs. And if you add a little bit of cannabis and improve their sleep and their pain and their nausea and their anorexia to enable them to then exercise and eat better and interact with their family, then you've done a huge service. So I think um, having control of prescribing and prescribing within an integrative oncology and supportive care service actually is um, is a value add. We, you know, that person doesn't walk out just with a, a referral to the cannabis dispensary. They're actually walking out with a whole person care program a multidisciplinary integrative oncology holistic program with a bit of cannabis. Sounds amazing. So, um, that's what we do. <laughs> I want to I talk a little bit about this COVID-19. You mentioned that Australia has done pretty well. You know, as a supportive care specialist, how do you, I mean, that's something that, you know, is in the news a lot, that people are dying and unable to be with their loved ones. How do you see this specifically affecting people, uh, you know, who get so sick uh, and die from COVID-19 or, or, you know, have cancer and develop COVID-19? No, this has been really hard. Uh, you know, I just looked at our numbers now, only 6,800 cases in the whole of Australia. We're very lucky. Uh, but people are dying and they're dying alone. And... Uh, and when I look at what's happening in America, particularly in New York, it, it's just horrible. You know, the idea that somebody, first of all, somebody dying from COVID-19 so rapidly and alone without an advanced care plan, without the person they love next to them is just horrible. It goes against everything that you think about when you think about um, a good death. And um, But people with advanced cancer are also dying alone. People in nursing homes are dying alone and people in aged care facilities. And so we're seeing that we need to adapt how we talk about death and dying. We've had a real um, move towards trying to get people home to be at home at the end of life. And that's been a way of managing it so that their family can be with them. We've isolated our elderly, you know. We've said, I haven't seen my parents, for example, for, you know, six weeks in person. Yeah. So it's really hard to, uh, those, the, it's really hard to negotiate how best to provide that spiritual care, that existential care, all of that care to somebody who really needs it the most and to their family in person. And so we've adapted. We use telehealth and we use um, other online ways of connecting and we have visiting systems so that a different member of the family can visit at different times. We so withdrew our touch therapies from the patient rooms because we thought relatives were more important than a massage. So you mentioned telehealth. Um, what all is offered with your telehealth? How's it going? Oh, amazing. Amazing. So, um, and I noticed, Santosh, that you're involved in uh, some telehealth programs as well. I, yes. Which is really exciting. We, um, 
we had an opportunity uh, during COVID-19 to put a lot of effort into modifying our services for when the wave hit, you know, waiting for that tsunami. And so we developed, we took all our services and built a, a website-based program. We already had a presence on the website, but it was taking... Um, taking the uh, the services that we have and modifying them for telehealth. So we have a large exercise program, setting up one-on-one -on -one consultations, running exercise programs, yoga one-on-one -on -one through telehealth, my medical consultations through telehealth, lymphedema self-massage, hmm. acupressure, and developing webinars and podcasts and education programs for patients. So we have basically just embraced. And actually now that we've embraced it and we're delivering these, these this care to the home, thinking, oh, do we drop it at the end of when this is all over or do you continue? Because it actually um, is quite empowering to particularly people who are less mobile or who are at home to actually have a treatment for them in their home. Our mindfulness program is online. We've got, currently we've got uh, two groups running uh, on different days on a on a uh, mindfulness program adapted for online, online delivery. And so we're just adapting and then we're embedding research. So we're evaluating what we've done, seeing where the gaps are, and then trying to work out how do we fill those gaps? Where are we, what are we missing? What are we overdoing? and then adjusting the treatments. The other thing we developed online and through was uh, staff wellbeing. And we found this as a really important opportunity for the living room, for our integrative oncology practitioners who work, you know, in the wellbeing space and the wellness space to actually deliver that care to the staff. Because if you're st the staff were uh, very anxious, very distressed and I'm imagining what it's like being a healthcare provider in the States. Uh, in Australia, it's been, um, there was a lot of anxiety around it, but then, uh, and now we're sort of in this limbo phase, what next? And how do you best support the staff with their wellbeing? Gyms are closed, delivering exercise at home, um, mind body therapies and really checking in and surveying the staff and seeing how can we meet your needs and what else can our service provide you to keep you well? And by doing that, we're also keeping our patients well. Yeah, it's a new new normal of us being virtually connected, which is still very important. I mean, for me, uh, I actually value the fact that I still go to work and, um, you know, I'm still seeing my colleagues, I'm still seeing my patients. I think it's challenging for people who um, are, are not able to do that you know, because I think that social connection is very important. But uh, yeah. I think so far patients and, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, mentioned uh, our healthcare community or patients who are using these services, they, they really, they really enjoy it. I think it's, it's going to, oh. it's going to stick around uh, because it's a, it's a really it's something that we always planned on. And this kind of gave us a kick in the butt to Absolutely. implement it. Yeah. And Santosh, the other thing that, um, I don't know if it happens with you as well, but the multidisciplinary team and the regular connections through Zoom meetings has actually been very therapeutic. You know, we ran a Schwartz round uh, yesterday with Zoom with, within the hospital. We have weekly multidisciplinary team meetings as a integrative oncology centre through Zoom and our hospital team meet daily of the COVID-19 uh, Zoom meeting. And I think uh, using zoom to connect and check in on our staff and work together as a team is actually uh, a wonderful tool yeah we we do that also and we have these these calls at least but i think from the patient care standpoint you know we're just designing you know novel ways to to take care of people and it's it's in a way it's um it's it's being creative with the fact that it's easier yeah. to fit multiple people online uh, attending to one person, that's easier than getting our schedules aligned and having us all in the same room and figuring out where the chairs go. I, I think that there's a lot of things that can come out of this for sure. And I think one thing that you did say just I think in, in finishing is that um, we in integrative oncology, we think probably uh, with um, innovation in mind and being creative as to how best to serve uh, and identify and 
uh, manage the patient needs and inspire people in that art of self-care. And I think what this has brought home is that incredible importance of uh, integrative oncology at this and integrative medicine at in during this particular crisis and uh, promoting self-awareness and self-care and self-efficacy. So I think um, by zooming into people's homes with our integrative oncology hats on, it's been uh, an opportunity to... Um, to use our creative uh, talents and our ways of uh, thinking outside of the box. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. And, uh, you know, thanks for being such a great leader in this field and being a star in Australia. So I have no doubt that this is going to continue to develop there. And I can't wait to hear uh, how it goes in the future. Thanks, Santosh. Thank you very much. You look after yourself. Thank you. Thank you.